I think that we said this evening uh, we would speak about the question of um, the interplay between making an effort and the miraculous, right? How much you have to Ishtadlis and Bitochon, that's how it's known classically, the problem of how much you leave up to Hashem's management, how much you leave up to His active participation in your, in your life, and how much you actually are meant to put yourself out or make an effort. In other words, the problem being, if all is really run by something by a higher Hanhaga, by something that comes down from a higher world, Einod Milvada, we understand there's really nothing besides Hashem, then why is it that we have to make any effort? And if we have to make an effort, what's the nature of that effort? And if we make an effort and we have to understand that despite the effort that we make, it really comes from Him, so then, again, how much do you have to make and how do you make that effort and not be blinded by the fact that you appear to be the one who is achieving the result. That's the problem. That's the problem of Ishtadlis and Bitochon. The problem of having faith and yet acting. Right? That's a problem. The Rambam, talking about the, the medical application of this subject, actually composed a small prayer that a doctor should should say, or a patient should say, before undertaking any therapy. And the little prayer that the Rambam that is attributed to him is that before you take any tablet or you take any medical therapy, you should say this, you should say, may it be your will, Hashem, asking Hashem, that this therapy which I'm about to undertake should be a healing for me. In other words, what you're indicating is you're about to undertake medical therapy, but you don't forget that the success of this therapy really comes from someplace else. That beautifully expresses this schizoid approach, if you like, that we make an effort, but we don't forget where it comes from. The classic application of this, of course, <coughs> the most classic application is the effort you have to make to earn a living. We understand that you go out to make a living, you have to do the actions that are required in earning a living. But you never allow yourself to be deceived into thinking that it's the action that generates the results, even though you do the action and it has to be commensurate with the result that you hope to achieve, but you never allow yourself to think that it's the action that's achieving the result. That's not easy. That's not easy. Again, in medicine, the, the authorities who talk about it say that the doctor should stand back from the bedside and should say to himself that what I'm about to do here makes no difference. If this patient is, is, is going to die here, then my activity makes no difference at all, and vice versa. And then you step forward and treat, this, treat the patient as if every breath depends only upon you. That means with full responsibility, you have to act with full responsibility, but never allowing yourself to think that the action is really the cause of the result. <coughs> that duality or, or dichotomy, if you like, that runs throughout the Jewish approach to, to our engaging the world. And it's a problem, it's not easy. Either way you go, either path is fraught with danger. If you do too little, it's not good. If you do too much, it's not good. And throughout Jewish, the Jewish approach to life, we have this issue. <coughs> One of the most beautiful ways it's expressed, the sages say that if someone tells you that he, that he, that he achieved without labor, do not believe him. Right? Somebody says, Yagati umatsati, that means, Yagati means I struggled and strove and labored. Umatsati, and I found a re the result occurred, you should believe such a person. <coughs> but the beauty of those words is so plain. Yegiah in Hebrew, Yegiah means labor against resistance. Yegiah, it means, it means straining and struggling in work. The result, Metsia, right, the result of the work that you find is really inappropriate. The Hebrew word shouldn't be Metsia. The correct Hebrew verb to use after the... If you say Yagati... The appropriate ending should be in Hebrew, pa'alti, or hisagti, or asiti, words that mean I achieved, I accomplished. But the word metziah in Hebrew always means an unexpected find. Metziah always means an unexpected find, something you stumble across and you look down and, that's, and, and it's there, you didn't expect it. <coughs> but that's so inappropriate. You just said that you labored, 
And then when it comes time to express the result of your labor, you use the word that means that the result is unexpected. What do you mean unexpected? You just work for it. <coughs> no. The Jewish grasp is that although you labored for it, the result has got nothing to do with the, with the labor. Remarkable thing. Of course, you wouldn't have gotten the result. You wouldn't have had any gifts had it not been for the labor that you did. But now that you did the labor, you appreciate that the gifts really are out of proportion. Remarkable thing. Remarkable thing. And there's many ways you see it. The simple blessing we make upon bread. Many, many sources say this. Simple blessing that we say upon bread. Blessed are you, Hashem. Who brings forth bread from the ground. <coughs> really, the person who's saying this over this bread, if you have any appreciation of what goes into a loaf of bread, there's a lot of human effort. Tremendous amount of human effort. It started a whole year ago breaking the hard ground and putting the seeds in and tending them and taking the weeds out and watering and there's so many stages and he's reaping the crop and threshing it and winnowing it and uh, there's so many stages that a human, the hands are raw by the time you hold that loaf of bread. I mean, you know, realize it because you bought it from what's the name? But the point is that somebody, really, human beings who put all this effort in and then you take that loaf of bread and you say, Baruch You bring forth this bread from the ground. That's a beautiful thing. You've just been through a whole year of your own labor. But before you eat it, you express the fact that it's really He who brings it forth from the ground. Again, same thing. But He doesn't bring, forth this, <laughs> he doesn't bring this thing forth from the ground unless you labor for a year. That's a remarkable partnership. It means you do the effort. He does the result. We hand it over to Him. He hands it to us, as it were. Remarkable thing. Remarkable thing. <coughs> and there's a practical side to this question which I don't want to go into this evening, which is how much effort exactly do you have to make <coughs> when you go to earn a living? How much effort should you make? Oh, there's a marvelous, Rav Desla has a marvelous presentation on exactly how you judge how much effort. Perhaps if there's time this evening, I doubt that there will be. Perhaps another time. He has a marvelous calculation, a logical, technical calculation that you can use in order to establish... <coughs> how much effort you exactly have to make, that will be commensurate and with the result. Right? Like the Messiah says, The beginning of the process is work, the end is a gift. You don't have any gifts without the work, but the result is a gift after you've done the work. How do you measure exactly where to stop the work so that the gift can be given? That's a subject in its own right. Let's see if we can study the subject at root and, and work it out. Now, I must inform you and warn you, perhaps a difficult subject <coughs> requires a lot of concentration. We have to be prepared this evening to work together and think through it, many levels and sub-levels. It's a marvelous area to discover together, but it will take, it'll take work and concentration. All right, let's try and work through the subject, starting at the top and bringing it down through its various stages. I believe last time we met we discussed the four levels of, yes, we discussed the four levels of perception of the miraculous or the deeper world that manifests through the the revealed world. Tonight, let's try and look at the five levels, if you like, of not just perception, but of engaging that physical world and bringing out of it its deeper, its heart, deeper level. Let's start this time at the top, <coughs> the highest level of perception and, <coughs> and, and identification <coughs> of the miraculous hand that moves within the seemingly natural world, and let's bring it closer and closer and closer, or down step by step into the, into the more profane or mundane levels. As we go through this discussion, of course, you should identify your own personal level. I'm not asking for a show of hands, but as we move from the supernal level of the prophets, right, all the way down to the lowest possible levels, you should privately try to <coughs> <clears throat> to identify your own level. <coughs> no doubt almost everybody here will fit into the <coughs> one extreme end of the spectrum. <coughs> That's why just out of humility we'll ask you to keep it to yourself. <coughs> but let's try and do that. If we discuss levels that are beyond your own personal level, nevertheless it's something to aspire to and it's Torah. It's Torah, we have to understand it, we have to understand people on those levels, and it's what we should aspire to, at least in some dimension or application. <coughs> the first level, are we ready? The first level is the level of people so high 
that they really don't need to make any effort at all. People who are so elevated, <coughs> who have so penetrated, <coughs> if you remember our discussion on the four levels, those people who have so penetrated the physical, who have so perceived the spiritual world within the physical, that in fact they are exempt from making any physical effort at all. These are people who can engage the miraculous level at will. If you remember our discussion then, we said that the criterion for being on this level is that your perception and your knowledge of the spiritual world is so deep that you can perform miracles at will. Right? The criterion for being on this level is the ability to manipulate the physical world miraculously at will. <coughs> and I think as I pointed out then, <coughs> there's, a slight, there's a secondary criterion, and that is that when you are performing these miracles, right, there must be not the faintest surprise on your face. That when you do it. I think we pointed that out. Just like Rabbi Hanina ben Dosa, when he came home and found that his daughter had poured vinegar into the Shabbos lights, because, um, and it was a tragedy because they didn't have, they were very poor. So he said to her, don't worry about the waste. Let the one who says that oil should burn, say that vinegar should burn. And she let the vinegar and it burned. Right? And therefore, he was able, and his wife was able, as the Gemara points out, many examples of miraculous conduct that she undertook, he was able to transcend the physical world and call upon the miraculous at any time. But, but as, I, as I think I pointed out, when you wish to confirm that you in fact are at this level, then you are lighting, take a little glass of vinegar or water. Again, you should do it in private. <coughs> and when you light the vinegar, just to be absolutely sure that you're at this level, be sure that when the vinegar burns, you register no surprise at all. If you register any surprise... No doubt the vinegar will burn for you, but if, when it does, when it does, if you feel in, this, in, the, in the slightest degree surprised by it, then you have missed this level, yes, you're very far off from this level. The, 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 the qualification, the, 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 the definition of someone at this level is that performing miracles is as natural for them as anything natural is for anybody else. Right? To them, things happen in the world only because Hashem says so, and it makes no difference whether, whether Hashem says that which we regard as natural or that which we regard as miraculous. It makes absolutely no difference. Things only happen because He says so. And therefore there is a complete ability to perform miracles and a complete ability to perform the miracles as if they were natural, no surprise at all. That's people at the first level. <coughs> I think last time we, we mentioned, I'm not going to go over it in detail, why is it that people so great are able to perform miracles... And very briefly, that is because the natural world in the first place is only a smokescreen that hides the divine presence. Hashem puts up an image, or a mask if you like, of what we call physics and chemistry and nature, <coughs> cause and effect. He does that only in order to hide His presence. It's only to give you a mask so that you have the ability to, to, to not see the reality if you wish. The reason for that is the doctrine of free will. And in order to have free will, you need to have a situation that can be read in two ways, so that you can choose in which way you wish to see it. And that, again, in its own right, free will and its basis, is a discussion in its own right. But given that he creates what seems to be the predictable cause and effect, habit-forming perception of cause and effect in the physical world, given that he does that for the reason of giving you the opportunity to have free will, the question is, do you see it as a smokescreen to be penetrated, or do you get fooled by it and think that it's real? Somebody high enough <coughs> who penetrates it, <coughs> in fact, steps beyond the bounds of nature, <coughs> and the reason is that a mask is not necessary for one who perceives the reality behind the mask. The example I think we might have mentioned is that if you're sitting in a room, and a friend of yours walks in with a mask on and an elaborate disguise, and starts speaking in a strange voice, and this person's having a lot of fun with you, because you don't know who he is, <coughs> if after a few minutes you realize who the person is, and you correctly identify them and you say their name, the very next thing they do will be, they will take off the mask. There's no point wearing a mask in the face of one who sees through it. It just doesn't have any purpose at all. And therefore Hashem who wears a mask in order for us to give us a challenge, <coughs> if somebody is a tzaddik, somebody is a high enough individual that they see through the mask, Hashem takes it off because there's no point at all. 
if this person is not fooled by nature, if this person sees every natural, so-called natural phenomenon, they see it only as a manifestation of Hashem's direct action, then there's no point. This person's not being fooled by the seeming cause and effect of nature. And therefore they don't need it. And therefore they can perform miracles at will. So far, so good. Now, someone on this level, <coughs> I believe we, we discussed all this previously, right? Now, let's try and take it a step further. If someone's at this level, Rasim Chazisel and others ask this question, right? From here on in, we're moving into new territory. If someone's at the level that allows them to perceive the miraculous and perform the miraculous at will, in other words, if nature has absolutely no reality for them, <coughs> why do we find <coughs> that whenever they are demonstrating this miraculous ability, they always perform a natural action. That's a fascinating question. If you look in the Torah, you'll find <coughs> that people who live at the miraculous level, whether they are performing a miracle at will, or whether they are performing a miracle that Hashem commands them to perform, you'll notice that they always make at least a token effort in the physical world. That token effort is so small that there's no way that it could have any material significance, but they always do it. And the question is why? Examples. 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 Yaakov Avinu, right? Jacob. Yaakov Avinu. He's fleeing from Israel. <coughs> He's going to his uncle Lavan. <coughs> and when he has to sleep, he lies down out in the wilds. He's out in the open. Dangerous place. Wild animals. What does he do? He takes 12 stones and he ranges them around his head in a semicircle to ward off any wild animals. Right? You remember? Remember this? In fact, what happened is that the stones all coalesced into one stone, a whole wonderful story, it became... But the point is that he made an effort. What was he doing? He was putting 12 stones. He wasn't building a Mizbah. Later, he took that one unified stone, <coughs> not because all the stones started arguing, let the tzaddik rest his head on me. Not, which is a beautiful way, Chazal showing you that the physical world is always, it has a she'ifa, it has a, a tremendous desire to serve the tzaddik. When Rivka arrives at the well, the water rises to meet her. Why? Because <coughs> the whole physical world, when it perceives the presence of a tzaddik, it's a remarkable thing. A very deep principle. When the physical world is in the presence of a human being who knows how to use it correctly, it has an uncontrollable longing and an urge to move towards the service of that righteous individual. That's what the physical world's here for, after all. The world's created only for your use. And therefore, when you're a person, you elevate yourself to the stage, to the status, to the level of being a person who can use the physical tools correctly, those tools run to meet you. Why does the water rise to meet this young girl who comes, who comes forth to, to water <coughs> her flocks and to water a stranger, give a stranger water? But water, water, I'm talking about childish anthropomorphic imagination. We're talking about the deep essence of physicality, that, that if, you, if you present the physical world where the human being is evolved enough, there's a, a tremendous magnetic attraction. And therefore these stones are longing to serve the tzaddik. And that's why they, they move to greet him, to meet him, or her. But our question is, that's not his intention. His intention is to put a semicircle of stones around his head to protect him from the wild animals. Now, if you, if you ever lived in the bush, not too many of you have, being English, I suppose, <coughs> but there are those of us who've had that experience. It's an essential experience, by the way. These days it's a lot more dangerous in the city, I can assure you. It's a great deal more dangerous in the city <coughs> than it is out there. I can assure you that. But in those days, when, that was a, when the wilds were a dangerous place to be, if you arrange 12 stones around your head in a semicircle, what sort of protection is that? I can assure you that no self-respecting hungry mountain lion <coughs> is going to be put off by a few stones that are arranged around a sleeping man's head. So why does he do it? If there's no, are you with me? If there's no way that this action <coughs> can have any meaning, can have no... <coughs> If it can have no material, if it can afford him no material protection, then why does he do it? When Moshe Rabbeinu walks up the mountain, Hashem says to him, He commands him. It's not just that the tzaddik chooses to do it. Hashem commands him to climb the mountain. Why? Because at the, at the top of Har Navoy, Hashem is going to show him a vision of the whole of Eretz Israel. There's no mountain in Israel, or outside of it, from which you can see the whole land of Israel. 
he's going to climb the mountain, he'll be miraculously shown a vision of the whole land. But if it's miraculous, why does he have to climb the mountain? Are you with me? <coughs> he can see it in his tent. If it's going to be a miracle anyway, <coughs> why does Hashem... Hashem commands him. It's not only that he does it. Hashem tells him. Climb the mountain, I'll show you a vision. Why? The Ramban talks about Noah, Noah who made an ark. You couldn't fit all the animals on earth into that ark. You know how big it was? Noah's table was a small structure compared to the number of animals that it had to house. It was a very small structure. It was 150 odd meters <coughs> by... And, and, and of the whole ark, this ship that he built, was a really small barge, really. Only a third of its volume really was, you know, the, the upper third was given to human habitation in its triangular section. And the lower third was given to waste, material, food, whatever. Only the thin middle section was really for animal habitation. And in that thin dimension of this barge, he had to fit every species of animal on earth, including the largest. It was impossible. And he might as well have taken a postage stamp and tried to fit exactly the same. It makes no difference. In fact, the Rabban says words that approximate a human being who wishes to touch the sky climbing on a chair in order to do it. Ridiculous doesn't make any difference. So why do you have to stand on the chair? If you're going to reach up and touch the sky, whether you're standing here or you're standing on a chair, it makes absolutely no well, Why do you have to do it? And if you follow the miracles of the greats of prophetic history, right, throughout the generations in which they were able to do miracles, <clears throat> you'll find that they always did a natural action, even though the natural action are really out of, completely out of proportion, ridiculous, pathetically, hopelessly out of proportion to the miracle. Is this correct? When, when Elisha, you remember when he comes to the woman who has no, <coughs> who has no, no money? No. So he says to her, listen to the story. <coughs> he says, what do you have? My yesh lach What do you have at home? <coughs> and she says, there's nothing here. Asuch shemen. There's one flask of oil. He says, fine. Go and, bring, go and bring vessels from your neighbors. So she sends her children out and they go and they bring vessels from the neighbors. It's a whole complicated story. They bring the vessels... And he says, right, start pouring. So she starts pouring oil from one vessel, and it fills whichever vessel they bring. Pours the oil, it fills the vessel, they take it away, they bring another vessel, it fills it, fills it miraculously. Fills another vessel miraculously. However many vessels they bring, such is the amount of oil that they're able to fill. Finally, at the end of this process, when she's already a wealthy woman, she has enough ready to pay off all her debtors. Creditors, what? Creditors? Creditors, yes. All the people who want money from her, she has enough to pay them all off, and have enough to live on besides. He says, have a odd kelly, bring another, bring another vessel, ain odd kelly, there's no other kli, no more, vayam od Hashem, and the oil stops. Now the question you have to ask is, what's this whole thing about sending her out, bringing vessels, filling the vessels? You know, if you're going to do a miracle for the lady, make the vessels! You know, you have to go, again, what is this? This is miraculous, right? You're producing oil from nothing. <laughs> First of all, you insist on starting from a flask of oil that already exists, and you only fill as many vessels as they bring. Do it properly. Can it do a miracle? Snap your fingers and make her rich. No, it doesn't go that way. What do you have? Ah, you have oil. Good, we'll use that. What do you have to pour it into? Nothing. Good, let's go fetch vessels. I mean, what is this? Is it a miracle or is it? If it's a miracle, what do you have to go through the whole story for? It's a fundamental question. <laughs> anyway, that's a fundamental question. <coughs> when Rev. Khalil Bendosa lights the vinegar, <coughs> why does he have to light vinegar? Why does he have to light vinegar? Make flame. Manufacture the oil and the flame, manufacture the... There are a lot of ways to do it. He has to walk in and see that there's already a liquid being poured. So he says, let him who says, let he who says that oil should burn, say that vinegar should burn, light the vinegar. Why doesn't the miracle take effect on some physical material? Do it. And it goes on and on and on. Whichever miracle you, as far as I'm aware, every miracle that you care to, you care to um, examine, there was a physical action, or a token, what we in English we would call a token action, that was made. Why does a person at that level, if he's so marvelously and cleanly and clearly able to perform that which is miraculous, why does there have to be any token action in the physical world? That's a, that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a basic question. There are simple little answers, <coughs> an answer that seems, again, Torah has got so many levels, <coughs> endless, endless discovery, a process of endless discovery. At a simple level, he answers like this. Let's see if we can understand it simply and then see if we can delve a little bit beneath the surface. He says the reason that a tzaddik performs an action is simply his humility. To simply snap his fingers and 
manufacture whatever needs to be manufactured, <coughs> a certain lack of humility there. Sure, this person is at that level, is capable of doing it. But there's a humility which, which determines, which demands that a person at that level should engage the natural and the physical at least, even though it really doesn't make any difference. But he's making an effort, he wants to touch the sky. He goes to the trouble of climbing on a chair. Moshe Rabbeinu wants to see a vision of the land. He climbs the mountain, he makes an effort, he climbs the mountain. There's, a, there's, a, there's an assertion of a certain degree of humility there, even though the result will be completely out of proportion. But nevertheless, there's an effort that's made. <clears throat> Yaakov Avinu knows that 12 stones are not going to protect him. But he labors to put 12 stones around his head. There's a semblance, there's a semblance of an effort that's been made, and he does it out of, hum- out of his humility. To blatantly lie down, totally assured that he's going to be protected because of his level, it's not in keeping with the level of it. Of a, tzaddik. a person that great has the humility, yes, to always make an effort. The deeper understanding here, that, that's what he says. <coughs> slightly deeper understanding gets a long discussion in its own right. <coughs> but just to, to feel out a slightly deeper level. <coughs> the hallmark of a tzaddik <coughs> the very method the very process that a tzaddik has undertaken, the path that he has walked to become who he is, is his humility. The definition of greatness in Jewish terms is the negation of ego that you're capable of undertaking. That, that's synonymous with your greatness. <coughs> you know, not just that a person who's very great happens to be very humble. That's not the way it works in Torah. The very reason for his greatness is his humility. The process of spiritual growth is the ability to admit that I'm nothing, it's all him. M- Moses, Moshe Rabbeinu, was the greatest person who ever lived. And the Torah says, by definition, he was the humblest person. He was the humblest person who ever lived. They are not accidentally related. They're related in essence. When you're so humble that you have none of your own content, then Hashem can fill you totally. But as long as you're walking around with some of your own content, then to that extent, He cannot fill you. Uh, again, people who are brazen, or people who are um, prideful or have their own self-importance, to that extent, to the extent that your own ego is there, I mean, these words are very easy to say. Of course, the exercise, the exercise of putting into practice is extremely difficult. But to the extent that you have your own ego intact, I mean, we're talking about a sense, your own sense of worth or your own knowledge of how great you are. It doesn't matter false humility. Moshe Benner didn't walk around saying, I'm nothing, I'm nothing. He knew that he was, you know, the Gemara says that the problem is we don't have anybody humble enough. You know, you're, I mean, you have to understand. We Humility doesn't mean that you're not objective about your greatness. Humility means that you're objective about your greatness. It doesn't mean that you don't know what your greatness is. But you're objective about it. The Gemara says that they needed somebody to compose the prayer for destruction of the evildoers. <clears throat> but to be able to make a prayer that wishes other people destruction, you have to be absolutely pure and humble. Someone says that they tried to do it, and they got up and they said that our problem is we have no one humble enough in this generation. So Shmuel Cotton got up and he said, what's the problem? There's me. Here I am. What do you mean there's no one humble enough? I am. There wasn't a lack of humility. He was being absolutely objective. Even about his humility. You can be objective about that. Pride, are you with me? Pride doesn't mean saying who you are. Pride means saying you're more than you are. And humility doesn't mean saying you're nothing. If a person is completely empty, has never achieved anything, never worked on himself, and he gets up and he says he's totally nothing, he's not humble, he's just right. <laughs> That's not humility. Humility means being very great and being very objective about it. Not, as, not asserting, or a, a um, what do you call it, not, um, not claiming for yourself any greatness that's out of proportion to what you are. And it's not claiming that you did it where you didn't do it. But to the extent that you worked on yourself and achieved a certain thing, you could be completely objective. That's, that's not... Are you with me? Moshe Rabbeinu knew he was the greatest person who ever lived. He knew exactly who he was. Uh, he knew... Well, the commentaries say that he knew, who he, <laughs> he knew who he was to the level that he knew it. There was a vast depth of his, own, of his own depth that he wasn't aware of. Way beyond what he knew he was capable of. But that applies to all of us. Even the most highly achieved people who have ever lived, are, are, are only just beginning to get the slightest in, intimation of what it is that, if you, knew what you were really be, if you knew what you were really capable of, no matter what you've achieved, if you knew what you were really capable of, you would be so astounded, you would be so shocked and astounded, you would definitely not believe it. 
No matter how much you've achieved, you haven't begun 1% of what it is that you're really capable of. <coughs> and Mephoshim teach it by Moshe Rabbeinu. <coughs> says that, <coughs> the beautiful illustration of it, <coughs> is that Hashem said, this is your people, you're responsible for them. Moshe Rabbeinu said, Hashem, I can't, I can't carry the load. I cannot, am I a nursemaid that can carry the child? I cannot do it. I don't have the capacity. You remember this? I can't do it. You know, the different Jewish people were, were a handful. They were a handful. The great Moshe Rabbein said to Hashem, I can't, I can't carry the load. You know what Hashem did? Amazing thing. You know, frightening. Hashem said to him, choose 70 elders of the Jewish people. You remember this? Choose 70 people. Amazing thing. means I will take off from you, <coughs> I will take off of you the, the, the spiritual greatness, the... Um, prophetic connection, right? Your voltage, your greatness, and I will give it to them, and all 70 of them will become prophetic in their greatness, and they will help you lead the Jewish people. Come, yes, you remember that. And, and that's how the Sanhedrin of, the, of, of 70 elders was formed, and that's how he, he had a group of people to help him. Mufoshim say that when Hashem, when Hashem took the prophetic spirit from him and put it onto them, there was enough, listen, listen carefully, there was enough to make those 70 people reach a level of prophetic greatness, and all that was taken from him that enabled them to become prophets, of his own level was so little, he was unable to discern the difference. <coughs> the, the, the expression is like when you light a candle, uh, when you light many candles with one candle, they all burn brightly, it doesn't diminish the flame at all. Right? That means that what happened was, all these people reached this level of greatness, and Moshe Rabbeinu's level was totally unaffected. And through that he began to realize, right, Hashem, Hashem showed him that you think I would have given you this responsibility and leadership if I didn't think you were capable of it. That, that which you said you weren't capable of. You haven't begun to realize what it is that you... You haven't begun to realize your level. Now Moshe Rabbeinu, who was the greatest person who ever lived and was the most clear and clarified and objective person who saw totally clearly. He saw absolutely... The, 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 the Chazal say he saw through a clear lens. He saw through an Aspaclaria Meira, that means a lens that is totally clear, as opposed to every other prophet who ever lived who saw through a cloudy lens. But you know what Abdesla says, you know what the difference is between seeing through a clear lens and a cloudy lens? It's not just a difference in quality. There's a difference in, there's a difference in not just in quantity, whichever word you want to use. There's a total, there's a complete difference in, in type. You know what the difference is? When you look through a clear lens, you see what you see through the lens. When you look through a cloudy lens, you see a reflection of yourself in the lens. Of course, you don't know that. So you think you're seeing objectivity. You don't know that it's a reflection of you. You think you're looking at the scene beyond the lens. And of course, the cloudier your lens is, the more of yourself you're seeing. But because it's cloudy, you don't know that. I mean, what a beautiful analogy. What a marvelous analogy. The more egotistical a person is, the less you've clarified your own essence, the the more you think you're seeing things exactly the way they are, but you're only seeing a projection of your own. Moshe was, Moshe ben was the one who saw through a lens that was so clear, it was completely clear. And he had not begun to realize what he was capable of, to the extent that when all that was taken off of him, it made absolutely no difference to him. What a lesson. That it means for us, we haven't begun to fathom even the very beginning of what it is that we're capable of. We walk around feeling, well, we couldn't cope, you know, we're having trouble coping. You're not here to cope in the first place. Not here to cope. You have to achieve greatness. Coping is just the basic standard that f- from which you begin. Unfortunately, most people, in the, most Jews in this generation, most people in this generation, if they're more or less coping, if more or less coping, they feel they're doing a very good job. The sad part of it is that if you're more or less coping these days, you are doing a very good job. Because most people aren't. Most people in this generation, if they're more or less psychologically intact, they have a marriage that's more or less recognizable as a marriage, They've got some children at home who, who are not totally delinquent and psychotic, deranged, <laughs> unfortunately. Such people consider that they're more or less coping. And unfortunately, that type of situation is not so common anymore. But you're not here for that. You're not created to cope and more or less keep things intact. That's just the basis from which you're supposed to move out and achieve greatness. Never we've got to a level where if people are more or less, sort of more or less together, it's like they think that they're managing something. <laughs> what a travesty of, of what a human being is supposed to be. Anyway, let's get back to our subject, since you got sidetracked. Um, <coughs> we said this, that a person who's very great is making a token effort 
only as an assertion of his humility, but it's not just as a token because it's a side issue. He achieved his level of greatness, or she achieved his or her level of greatness by being able to open themselves entirely to Hashem's <coughs> presence and, and manifestation in their lives, and by very, the very act of self-negation, defeat, d- destruction, if you like, emptying out of their own ego, right, that's what got them there. And therefore now when they've gotten there, they're not about to start asserting their own ego. And therefore no matter how great they are, even if Hashem tells them, <coughs> always includes making that effort which engages the physical world. There's a lot more to the subject. I don't really want to spend too much time on this level. Again, I'm sure, since most of you are already there, we don't need to go to it in, in, in great detail. <coughs> but just to add that one detail from the deeper sources, without going into explanations at all, no matter how high the level that's achieved, <coughs> it's always done by some connection with the physical world. There's never a divorce from the vehicle of physicality, no matter how high a person gets. Right? The physical world is always... The Kuzari says that it's absurd. He actually says that it's absurd that the spiritual result should happen from the physicality of a body, which is its complete opposite. A body is animalistic, it's, it, it contains excrement, it's, given to, it's temporal and it's given to destruction. It's absurd that that should be the tool that reaches into the infinite world, but that's the way the world is. And therefore it's not possible. And in depth that's what a mitzvah is. <coughs> a mitzvah is a thing you do... Virtually all the mitzvahs are physical. Isn't that right? Virtually every mitzvah in the Torah, with the exception of maybe a handful, not more than four or five, maybe, or six, of all the hundreds and hundreds of mitzvahs, they're all physical actions. What sort of spiritual system is dependent on physical actions? That's the way the world's built. You don't get there unless you engage the physicality. I once had a wonderful Rebbe, <coughs> who now lives in Manchester, who said that the physical world is like the keyboard of a piano. When you play the keys, the music happens. The music doesn't happen in the keys. The music happens deep inside the connections that the keys make. But you can't get there without the keys. You can't get into the spiritual world without the keys of your body and the physical world. You can't get there. <clears throat> Even though it's ridiculous and it's not where it's happening. But you can't get there without the physicality. And therefore, no matter how, the word mitzvah in Hebrew, people think it means commandment. But you know what the root of the word mitzvah is? Tzavta in Hebrew means together. Tzavet in modern Hebrew means a crew, people who function together. But Tzavta Chada means in one bond. Mitzvah means an action where you in the physical world become one with Hashem in the spiritual world. That's what a mitzvah really means. Right? You press the key, he makes the music. But he doesn't make the music unless you hit the key. That's the connection. And therefore, no matter how high a person is, there's always an engaging of physicality. And there's a lot more to the subject. <coughs> but let's see if we can bring it down a little bit to the, <coughs> to the levels which are below this. Can we move to the next level? Are we together? Now, unfortunately, we have to leave most of you behind as we come down to the more <coughs> amateur levels. Somebody on the second level is a person... Right, now, stay carefully with me. Here's where we really need to concentrate. <coughs> Somebody on the second level is a person who's absolutely and totally capable of miracles at any time. But this person doesn't perform miracles. Despite being able to. Why? This person engages the physical world and destroys it by engaging it. This means... You see, when a person performs a miracle, the person is living beyond the physical world. There's no interaction with physicality, except the token, humble effort that we mentioned before. But if a person wishes to break physicality, then they must engage it, and while using it, demonstrate that it's nothing. That's very difficult. Again, the way to break the illusion of the reality of physicality is to use it, and while you use every aspect of physicality, you're teaching yourself and demonstrating that this is nothing. Are you with me? The person takes the tablet. There's not a person who relies on miracles to be healed. But they, they take the tablet, and despite taking the tablet, they're not fooled for a moment that the physical is anything at all. That's a very, very special greatness. Let's try and explain it a bit more fully. The best way to explain this, right, if, you, if you can stay with me, is I'm going to go from the second to the third level, because the, it's, the, it's the contrast between the second and third levels that really brings out their meaning. Can we do that? Do we need a blackboard? We have five levels. Yes, we make it graphic. We have five levels. We left behind the first level. We're now going to look at levels two and three. <coughs> okay? And we'll contrast them with each other because it brings out their meaning most fully. And to do it, I'm going to split them into four levels. <coughs> and you don't need a degree in nuclear physics for this. Just a little Gemara. Four levels here that range from number two to number three. That best 
brings it out. Can we do that? Let's do that. Let's see if we can understand. Out of this, we'll, we hope to gain a deep understanding of what is level 2 and what is level 3. Let's, let's do it like this. There's a medrash, medrash in Eicha, the medrash says like this. Stay closely with me. <clears throat> there were four Jewish kings. And they each handled their interaction with Hashem, and their interaction with the natural, in different ways. There was King David, King Asa, King Yehoshaphat, and King Chizkiah. Four Jewish kings in chronological order, not very, very great individuals who led the Jewish people during the generation of Jewish royalty. Now they each behaved in a different fashion. Stay with me carefully. David HaMelech came along, he was first of these four great kings, and he said like this, Hashem, I will pursue my enemies, when the Jewish people were threatened by external enemies, wartime, I will pursue my enemies, and I will destroy them. I shall pursue my enemies and overtake them, and I will not return until I have destroyed them. A tremendous statement of self-confident ability, he's going to go out on a military campaign, pursue his enemies and destroy them. And Hashem said, I too shall do this. That's what the matter says. Let's go to the next king. Right? Strange words. King Asa comes along and he says, I do not have power to destroy my enemies. This is what he said. I have no power to destroy my enemies. I shall pursue them, <coughs> but when I overtake them, Hashem, <coughs> I will stop and I want you to destroy them. I want a miracle. I demand a miraculous intervention on your part. And Hashem said, I will do it. And that's what happened. Let's go to the third king. King Yehoshaphat. I don't have power to destroy them, but I do not have power to pursue my enemies. <coughs> not only can I not destroy them, but I can't even pursue them. All I'm going to do is sing. Sing to Hillim, Daven. They went into the base of Mikdash. That's, it was during the times of the, of the temple, the base of Mikdash. And they prayed to Hashem, they Daven, they said to Hillim, and Hashem took care of the whole thing, a miraculous rout and defeat of the enemies threatening the Jewish people. I'll do it for you. You go and Daven and say to Hillim, I'll take care of the military threat. Comes along King Chizkiah. Chizkiah was a very great man. But the Gemara says he could have been the Mashiach. In fact, the Gemara says, had he sang, he could have been Mashiach. And Sancheriv, Sancheriv, who was his arch enemy in that generation, who marched against, who marched against Yerushalayim, who was destroyed miraculously, Sancheriv could have been Goig. You know the war of Gog and Magog that comes against the Jewish people? Hashem, Bikesh Hashem, Lasa is Chizkiah Mashiach, but Sancheriv, God, right? Hashem wanted to make Chizkiah the Mashiach. Uh, Commentaries say it means Mashiach ben Yosef because it was in a generation that Mashiach could not have come. But without going into the details, he was great enough to be the Messiah, the Mashiach. And Sancheriv, his enemy, would have been Gog. And it would have been the total and definitive destruction of all evil and that's what it would have been. Chizkiah, he missed something, something he didn't do. <coughs> Whatever. At his incredible level. What did he say to Hashem when the Jewish people were threatened by Sancheriv, by the enemy? I don't have power to destroy them. I do not have power to pursue them. I do not have power to sing. I'm going to go to sleep. And Chizkiah went to sleep. Gone to bed. He went to sleep. And during the night, while he was sleeping, Hashem wiped out the enemy. You remember the story? The, the <coughs> totally destroyed. Now, <coughs> let's examine these four levels. Which, who is the greatest? And who is the least? For the common and unsophisticated, unlearned ear interprets that story very simply. Surely David was the least. And Chizkiah was the greatest. After all, King David had to make a tremendous effort. Serious <coughs> enemies, he had to train his soldiers, he had to make an army, they had to go out there. And then they, when they finally caught up to the enemies, they had to fight with them, and there's a whole battle. <coughs> and finally they were victorious, Hashem helped them. <coughs> Enormous expenditure of effort and risk and danger, etc., etc., etc. When you get all the way down to Chizkiah, what a level, what a level, Hashem, I'm going to sleep, you take care of it. Gets into bed, as a good sleep, that to come and wake him in the morning to tell him that Hashem wiped, wiped out the enemies of the Jews. What a level! But the Medrash is telling you exactly the opposite. And I hope by now it should be plain. The Medrash is telling you this. David was on such a level, David al was on such a, such a level, that he, he was able to teach the world that physical actions are nothing. How did he do that? By making physical actions and breaking each one. David went out to battle and as he took his sword in his hand and he went out to battle with every single flicker of a movement of his body, 
he was saying to himself, and this is nothing, it's all Hashem. Do you understand? He was able to make perfect actions in the physical world. He was like that doctor who steps forward to the bedside and treats his patient absolute, with total consummate skill, and not for one second thinks that the result depends on him. Now that's a dangerous game. That's a dangerous game. Because you might get a little bit prideful, and you might forget who's really doing it, and you might think it's you. The danger of engaging the physical world is you can get trapped into believing that it's real. If you go pursue your enemies, and you beat them, there's a very big danger that you'll say, good general, good soldiers. That's the problem. If, a, if an army will go out, David's army, or even if they're small in number, but if they go out and they rout the enemy, there's a very big danger they'll come home and they'll say, we fought well, and they'll omit and forget to see Hashem's interaction, they'll forget about him. If you want to engage the physical, you better be very, very sure that you won't, accredit, you won't take the credit, that you'll, that you'll acknowledge where it comes from. If you're going to go and work in business, <coughs> you're going to make some spectacular business decisions, and you're going to do really, really, and you'll be wealthy and successful. There's a very big danger. The danger is you'll say, well, I did it right, I worked hard, got up early in the morning, went to bed late at night, I made good decisions, etc. Very risky. <coughs> David was able to do it. David Amalek was able to go and perform every single action naturally, and without a moment, not for a moment did he forget who was doing it. <coughs> Before Shem said that every person that David killed on the battlefield, David went out to battle. He had a battle axe and a mace and a sword. And every skull that he crushed and every spine that he broke on the battlefield was Ke'ilu is Makriv Korbanus in the base of Mikdash. You know that? It was like he's bringing sacrifice. Do you know, I mean, Hashem It means Hashem, you are always before me. Do you know what that means to be able to say that Hashem, you are always in front of me? Whether I'm sitting back and you're acting, <coughs> whether I'm acting fully, I never fail to see your presence and totally acknowledge, you have to be a giant for that. Why is he doing it? To break his confidence in physicality and to demonstrate that this is nothing. Every time you engage a physical action and you do it with ultimate care and with ultimate responsibility, and as you're doing it, you're showing that it's nothing, you're breaking it. You're breaking the illusion of physical reality. You're teaching, you're showing, and you're learning, and you're demonstrating, you're teaching that this is nothing. But, but to do it, you have to engage the risk. You have to enter the risk of handling physicality in order to break it. That's a big risk. You have to be enormous for that. Comes along King Asa, and he says, Hashem, I do not have the confidence. I'm afraid. I don't have the confidence. I'm worried that if I take my soldiers, and we go and pursue the enemy, and we destroy them, somebody may say, we did well. And we may a little bit forget about you. And it's too risky. I'd love to be able to do what David Amalek did, but it's too risky. Do you know what I'm going to do? <coughs> We get the soldiers together, I'm going to train them, we're going to make a tremendous pursuit, and at the last minute we're going to stop, we'll make high effort, but we're going to stop at the last minute. And we want you to take over. We want a miracle. You know why? Not to prove that we're great enough to merit miracles, but to show that we're too small to go into it with the confidence that we'll, that we'll remember you. And Hashem said, you're right, I'll do it for you. And he, that's what they did, a partnership. They, they pursued the enemy, when they got there, they all stood back, and Hashem wiped this whole miraculous ambush that happened and they all got wiped out. Why? So that they could do their action, but there was such a miraculous intervention that nobody could forget that Hashem did it. That was the perfect balance. Comes along King Yehoshaphat, next generation, much lower. Time's going by, the Jewish people are descending in greatness. Hashem, he says, I do not have the confidence. I'd love to be able, I just, we can't risk it in our generation. You know what will happen? Even if we pursue them, even if we don't attack them, but we pursue them and they get destroyed, you know what we'll say? We pursued them well. We confused them. We did something. We must have done something right. Too risky. You know what we're going to do? We can't risk anymore. We're going to go to the base of Mekdash. We're going to dive in and say to him, we're not going to lift a finger. We want you to take care of it. Hashem says, you're right about it. You're right about it. You go say your tell him, I'll take care of him. That's what happened. They called into existence a miracle because they couldn't risk any more effort. What happens in Chizkiah's generation? Chizkiah <laughs> says, Hashem, we have fallen to a level where we have no confidence left at all, we're descending so much into the generations of physicality and ego and pride and self-aggrandizement, etc., that if we do anything at all, anything at all, we're liable to take the credit. We're liable to take the credit. So if we go doubling the base of Mikdash, and we say to Hilim, and the enemy are all wiped out miraculously, you know what we'll say? Good to Hilim! That's what we'll say, we're doubling well! We'll say something. We're going to go to sleep. That's all we can do. We don't have the power to do anything. And You hear this? Amazing thing. 
And Chizki went to sleep. It was the only way that they were safe in that generation of being able to acknowledge that it's all from Hashem. Of course, you have to be great enough at that level to merit miracles, of course. You can't do this. You have to be great enough to, to know that if you're going to call on Hashem to do a miracle, He'll do it for you. You cannot afford to do this when you're at that level. But if you're at that level, you have to ask yourself, are you great enough that you can make an effort and you won't be fooled? Or are you lowly enough that you must never rely on a miracle in order yeah, not to risk your <coughs> own ego being alerted and awakened? And that's what happened to Chizkiah. You realize, of course, Chizkiah was the generation, it's much deeper than this, Chizkiah was that generation of Jews that specifically made no effort. You remember his generation? The Gemara says that they all learned Torah to the extent that every Jew alive was so knowledgeable about Torah. It was a generation that they learned. The Gemara says that midan sheva. They searched the Jewish people from Dan to Beersheba. That's the length, and that's the length of Eretz Israel. They couldn't find a baby who didn't know all the laws of Tumen Tahira. Tinoik, a little child. They couldn't find a little Jewish child who didn't know the most complex laws of the Torah dealing with Tumen Tahira. That was their generation. The Gemara says that Chizkiah made all the people sit and learn, and he put a sword outside the door. You remember this? He used to hang a sword outside the base marriage door, and he said, anybody who leaves Torah learning shall be pierced with a sword. Pain of death. And some of the commentaries ask, there's no punishment of death for stopping learning Torah. If a Jew would leave the base marriage and go out to earn a living, go work the fields. You know how to do that. may not be the highest level, but you're not, there's no death sentence for that. So why did he promulgate a decree of death against any Jew who would leave his Torah learning? Because Chizkiah's generation was a generation where the effort they made was making no effort. Do you hear this? The hallmark of that generation was that they did not engage effort. They didn't go out to make a living. They didn't work the fields. Their generation was a generation where they sat and learned Torah. That's what they did. And they relied on miracles. That was the nature of the generation. And therefore, if you left the base marriage to go out and earn a living, you were risking the life of the Jewish people. you hear that? You were breaking the methodology and the method that they survived by in that generation, the way they survived then was by not making an effort and calling it all into miraculous existence and you sit and learn Torah. And therefore, any Jew is going to go out and say, well, I'm going to go work the fields. Oh, you're going to go engage the natural, you're breaking what we're at. And that's where there's a radar from the people. And that's the, that was... So, Chizkiah's level, okay? Now, can we put back our big picture? First level, can we revise? First level, somebody who is so above the physicality, they have to do nothing at all. They only make a token effort within the physical. <coughs> Next level. <coughs> this is not a lower level, really. You can see David Amalek is not any lower than the people we spoke about before. <coughs> but this is a person who must teach and demonstrate <coughs> that physical actions look as if they're self-contained and they cause and effect. And I'll demonstrate that they're not. How do I do it? I engage every aspect of physicality and in not in the faintest flicker of a movement do I ever allow myself to believe that it's me. You have to be incredibly grateful for that. You have, to, you have to see the physical and see through it. Every single movement and every single object and every single expression and emotion and phenomenon, you have to see it and see Hashem in it. Tremendous, permanent greatness. Third level, four stages down, just by way of illustration, somebody who is so unconfident of themselves that they feel that if they engage anything physical, they may start taking some credit. <coughs> so what do they do at that level? Rely totally on miracles. Okay? Let's come down to the fourth level. Again, by now I'm sure most of you are completely completely exempt. But just in case there's anybody left who <coughs> still developing. <coughs> the fourth level is our generation. The fourth level is us. It's our generation. No miracles, no prophecy, nothing left. That's us. Why? You see, we live in a generation, in a series of generations, <coughs> where we can't call on miracles at all. Can't call on miracles. Why? Because our nature is, we are so sunk in physicality. We are so convinced that what meets the eye is what there is. We are so totally overwhelmed and convinced about cause and effect. We have so little vision of anything that transcends it. That you know what we would do if we saw a miracle? We'd explain it naturally. We wouldn't be sensitized. You hear this? If Hashem did a miracle today for us, a total blazing miracle, be a waste of a good miracle. We would look at it and find a scientific explanation. We would say it was an illusion, it was this, it was that, it was forces of this or that or the other, we would find it. If the Red Sea split today, imagine that the Red Sea split, the water stood vertical. The New York Times would send a seismographic expedition 
to start working out where like the rift was and how the... Wouldn't they? Wouldn't they? Imagine a report in the, tomorrow's newspaper said that the Red Sea suddenly stood vertical. This generation would suddenly become religious, religiously devoted. They'd be fascinated by what must have been the energies and the waves and the... <coughs> wouldn't they? And you know what happens when that happens? <coughs> Hashem does a miracle and you don't see it. You're much worse off than if he doesn't do a miracle. Because if he reveals himself and you slap him in the face... Which is what this generation is doing. Yes? If he shows himself and you push him away, if he doesn't show himself, that's one thing. So you don't acknowledge his presence. He didn't show himself. You don't acknowledge his presence. He's busy handing you stuff through the door and through the window and he's... So you don't see him. <coughs> but if he walks into the room... <coughs> are you with me? If you're living someplace and your father's sending you stuff in the mail and he's keeping you going and you never write a thank you letter, you never acknowledge it. So you're an ingrate. But if he walks in and he says, Here I am! And here it is. And then you don't look. You just take it. And you, that, that, there's no excuse for that. Nothing, no hope for you. <clears throat> Therefore, he cannot show his face. He cannot, he doesn't want to show miracles. Of course he wants to. What father doesn't want closeness with his child? What father doesn't want to pick up his child and do it for him? But if the child's going to not see you when you appear, could you take the pain? He can't take Imagine how he feels. Imagine how he feels. He wants to be close, but he can't come to visit. Because he knows when he knocks on the son's door and he walks in, they're going to say, who are you? And therefore, he doesn't show us any miracles. You understand? If he showed us any miracles, and we, because for our good, you have to understand this, if he would show us a miracle and we would find a natural explanation, so we'd be rejecting, there'd be no excuse for that, there'd be no hope, there'd be no turning back. And that's the nature of our generation, it's scientific explanation. And therefore, in our generation, we don't see any miracles. Our problem, of course, now is how does he speak to us? In the previous generations, how does he speak to us? He performs miracles. If you're high enough that you can engage the natural and see him anyway, so you do the natural, doesn't do any miracles for you. If you're low enough, like King Chizkiah, that you must have miracles performed for you in order to see him and not forget him, he performs miracles. But what happens if you're a generation like ours, where if he shows miracles, you're not going to see them? Are we together? You see his problem? Just one second. Listen, listen to Hashem's problem. What are his options? <coughs> if he's going to show you a natural world, you're going to say, well, it's all natural. It's all cause and effect. It's all the Big Bang and evolution. And if he shows you a miracle, you're going to say, well, it's natural. So how does he speak to you? The problem is he wants to communicate with us. He wants to speak to you. He wants you to see him. He doesn't want, he, it's not a game or a joke. He wants you to acknowledge his presence and relate to him. So how can he do it? If you live in a great enough generation where you can be natural and see him anyway, fine, he lets you do the natural. You see him. If you're a little bit lower than that, you're only King Cheskia. So Hashem says, I'll do miracles for you. What, do you. what do you need? You want a miracle? Here it is. So you can see Him. But if you live in a generation like ours, where no matter what He does, you're not going to see Him, how does He speak to you? You share the problem. Miracles are not going to help. You can explain them away naturally. The, naturally, the natural is certainly not going to help. You certainly explain that naturally. See what He does? He's only got one thing left up His sleeve, as it were. He lets you make a natural effort, absolutely perfectly calculated to be successful, and he makes you fail. What else has he got? He's, the only thing he's got left is the natural, and he, can, and he breaks it. Again, again, understand. This is a person who makes every move right. He buys the right goods at the right time, and he sells them at the right time. And he makes, he goes to the, he's done the best business courses, and he's got the best employees, and he's got, he's absolutely superb, and at exactly the least possible moment, he goes totally bankrupt. Why? Hashem's trying to say to him, there's something here that more than meets the eye. I would like to show you a miracle, but you can explain it naturally. I would like to see you mechanical cause and effect, that if you make the right decisions in business, you're successful, but then you're going to say it was you. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to let you follow a natural course that is absolutely perfectly calculated and predicted to be successful, and I'm going to show you that it fails. I'm going to break the natural for you. What else has he got? And this is the reason why people do things right and they fail. This is one of the reasons why people go along a path that has been trod many times before and it's guaranteed to be successful. They all the credentials, they've got everything going for them, and at exactly the least possible moment they fail this morning. He's trying to speak to them. And one of the reasons that you fail when it's least predictable and least possible, he's trying to get through to you and say, don't be so confident in what you think is natural. I have no other way of speaking to you, so I'm going to bring you to the point of total self-confidence, and when it can't possibly go wrong... I'm going to make it crash. It's a tremendous gift. Tremendous gift. 
tremendous gift. You're going to he, he's trying, it's not the only reason that people fail. There's other, reasons, other spiritual reasons as well. But one of the reasons that people do calculate it, yes, <coughs> because this is the person who thinks you wake up at 6 in the morning, you work hard, you go to bed at 11 o'clock at night, you work since you're 16 years old, etc. You become rich. That's how I made my first million. Oh, is that so? So you got on that pathway, and exactly when it's perfectly calculated and perfectly predictable, it breaks down. That's his method of handing people at the fourth level when he's trying to get through to them. <coughs> so far, so good. Before we go to the fifth level, which nobody hears on, the fifth level is not something you want to be on. Let's see, let me just mention a beautiful Gemara. The Gemara says, beautiful thing. Gemara says there was a man once who lost his wife. Lost his wife, and he had a newborn child. And the child needed suckling. But he, his wife, he lost his wife. He was so poor, he couldn't afford a woman to nurse the child. He could have maybe hired a woman who had milk and he, she could nurse the child. He couldn't afford it. A miracle occurred, and, and he nurtured his own child, suckled his own child. That's what Gemara says. It doesn't say his name, <coughs> but it says that's what happened. Now, after that incident, this miraculous incident, there's an argument between two great sages of the Talmud as follows. One of them said, how great was that man for whom a miracle was performed? The other sage comes along and says, how lowly was that man for whom the order of creation had to be changed? What kind of argument is that? What kind of was he great or was he lowly? I mean, how can you have an argument like that? The man merited a miracle. Right? An absolute transcendent miracle and that's how he saved his child's life. So, he was great. What do you mean in the opinion he was lowly? But can you see what's going on? These two sages are looking at it from two different levels. If you look at it from the vantage point of the third level, this man was very lowly. Why was he lowly? Because he needed a miracle. He needed Nebuch a miracle in order to see Hashem's presence. Had Hashem sent him some money in the mail from an old debt that he'd forgotten, a seemingly natural mechanism, he wouldn't have realized that it was Hashem doing it. Do you understand? Only if Hashem did a miracle for him, Yes? Only if Hashem did a miracle for him would he be sensitized and see it. So Hashem was unable to deal with him naturally. He was very lowly, this man. Had he been a David HaMelech, Hashem could have dealt with him naturally and he still would have seen it. Do you understand? But the other sage is looking from the fourth level. Wow, this man merited a miracle. He must have been enormous. So they're both valid opinions. The question is, what standard are you comparing it to? It's beautiful. Let's go to the fifth level and we'll finish with that for this evening. <coughs> So by and large, our generation is on the fourth level. What's the fourth level? He allows you to do that which is perfectly logical and mechanical and cause and effect and calculated, etc. And he makes it crash. Why? Sensitize you. Something's going on in your life. Don't be so confident. Don't be so self-confident. What's the fifth level? Stay with me well. This is frightening beyond words. <coughs> and something that's worth, it's worth spending a lifetime avoiding. A fifth level is somebody like this. This is an individual who does not want to be contacted at all. He's not at home. He's not available. No matter what Hashem does to contact him, he is not going to pay attention. You get people like that. No matter what Hashem does for him, he's not going to pay any attention. Let's go through it. Hashem will do a miracle for him. You know what he'll say? Natural. He'll find a natural explanation. Good. Hashem will do the natural for him. He'll say it's natural. Hashem will do the natural and break it. You know what he'll say? Unlucky. That's what he'll say. Unlucky! Try again! So what's Hashem got left? How does he speak to such a person? You hear this? What can he do? He'll do a miracle for him, the person will explain it naturally. That's the worst thing he could do for him. He'll throw back a miracle in Hashem's face. No, he can't do that. He's going to allow things to take their perfectly natural course. The person will say, well, of course, cause and effect, it's all natural. He can't do that. He'll allow things to take a natural cause and effect, and at the last minute, totally unpredicted, he'll break them. The person will say, well, I was allowed... <laughs> so how does Hashem speak to such a person? What does Hashem do for such a person? The answer is there's nothing He can do for him. You can't speak to a person who doesn't want to hear. You've got free will. No matter what Hashem does, if you refuse to hear, you cannot speak to somebody who doesn't want to hear. There's nothing that Hashem can do for such a person. But there's something that He can do with such a person. He can't speak to him, but He can use him. You know what Hashem uses such a person for? You know what he does with such a person? He lets this person make an absolutely supreme, superb effort. He does everything right. He gets the best education, the best training, the best moves. And Hashem ensures that he's totally successful. Every time. Everything goes according to plan. 
You know what? To be the temptation for you and me. These are the people who populate the world and the world goes exactly according to plan. And you look out at them and you say, well, maybe I should be, maybe I should be doing that. This is the fellow you hear on the radio. They said to him, sir, how did you make your first million? Well, easy. Since I was 16, I got up early in the morning and I worked till 8 o'clock at night and I worked every day, and even when I was sick, etc., etc. So you listen to this and you think, gee, that's where it comes from. These people are the bait on the hook of reality. After all, Hashem needs a world of natural cause and effect to tempt you, doesn't he? If everybody who made an effort and really worked hard got crashed at the last moment, well, nobody fall for that. But he's got plenty ready to help him. Plenty. He's got hundreds of thousands out there who are only too happy to oblige him. They're not going to see him anyway. He says, you know what you get from me? Perfect guaranteed success. Mechanical cause and effect. Exactly what's predictable, that's what happens to you. Why? Because you're hopeless anyway. You're hopeless anyway. You don't let me reach you. There's no But I need you. And that's called Chayolos HaSatan. These are the people who are the, the hordes, the hosts, that run their lives naturally and appear to be natural. It's a whole world of cause and effect. It's not only nature that runs by cause and effect. It's a human nature too. And Hashem has to let it run. He needs a whole herd of people out there. A herd of people. And He's got them. But you don't want to be one of them. You don't want to be one of them. You'd rather that you make your plans perfectly and work hard and have them crash at the last minute. You should relish that experience. It should never happen to you. <laughs> but if it happens to you, at least you know somebody's speaking to you. But when the child goes ahead and does whatever he wants and nothing ever goes wrong, you know what the father's saying to him? I give up. I wash my head. There's nothing I can do for him. No matter what I try for this child, he just doesn't respond. He says to the child, just do whatever you want. The Mephoshim say on Rosh Hashanah, that's the worst din you can have. The worst din you can have on Rosh Hashanah is no din at all. There's no hope for you. Whatever you want, you're part of the natural world. Whatever you want, go right ahead. But it's only because you're behaving that way. And therefore, that is the fifth level. Those whose lives are predictable, those who never get spoken to because they are unavailable to be spoken to, and you get dealt with only the way you deal. Only what you're open to is the way is what you receive. Medicanegad <coughs> medit. And therefore, these are the five levels. These are the five levels of human ishtadlus and bitachon in the large scale and scope of things. These are the five levels on which it's possible to exist, ranging all the way from those who are miraculously capable and only show the humility of engaging the physical, all the way down to those who are completely unavailable. They don't want to be contacted. They don't want to be spoken to. They're not available. They're not at home. We are aiming to start from the fourth level. We are aiming to look up and to perceive. If you live on the fourth level and you see Hashem, He doesn't have to make you crash. If you're successful and you see it comes from Him, you don't have to make you crash. Some some authorities say that if you go and visit somebody who's sick and you really experience what they're going through, you you may never have to get sick yourself. If you go in the midst of Bikr Cholim and you really understand what that person is going through, well then you learn the lesson. You would not have to get sick yourself. We you have to learn the lesson. And therefore we have to look around at the world, place ourselves squarely where we are in this generation on the fourth level and we have to look up at least to